The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 23, 10 through 33. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, and what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering in the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have been here for the last, I don't know, it's probably, I think September is when we started our series in Exodus. Uh, We've been trekking our way through the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I think it's been like 30-some weeks up at this point. Um, we, um, 
we, we stopped for 10 weeks in chapter 20 by itself just to kind of plot through the Ten Commandments. And now we're, we're kind of coming to a point where the law is wrapping up, and, and we'll, we'll touch on that. But really, if you haven't been with us, what I want you to see here, what, you, what I want you to know, just to give you some context, so when we're jumping our text, you know what's going on, is essentially the, the story of Exodus begins with God's people locked down, trapped in Egyptian slavery. For 400 years, they've been under uh, suppressed by cruel Egyptian slavery. It's been brutal. It's been tough. And then what we see is God raised up this man named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, to deliver them from their slavery, from their bondage, and, and essentially bring them to the promised land, this land that God had promised his people even way back in, in the book of Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this land flowing with milk and honey, this, this rich and glorious place to live. And God is doing that, but he isn't doing it right away. See, when, when they get delivered from Egypt, they don't go straight into the promised land. They, they go, God leads them into the wilderness. And so for 40 years, they, they're trekking through the wilderness here. Um, and we're at the point in the story where, where we know that it's God who has led them to the wilderness, but we haven't really found out why God has led them into the wilderness why, why, this question is like, why wouldn't God just take them straight to the promised land? And I think as I sat in this text this week and I was thinking about what, what are the implications that this has on our life or how can we relate to the text, I, I really found that this, this text is very helpful for us in the Christian life. Because we're, we're, Israel is, is kind of in this season of in-between, right? They're in-between, they're not in Egypt anymore, but they aren't in the promised land. They're in this wilderness phase, this in-between phase. And, and I, I thought how fitting that is for us in the Christian life, right? Where Jesus has come. He has, he has paid the price for our sins once and for all. He has conquered death. And, and there is glory coming. One day we'll, we'll be in heaven with Jesus. But we're currently in this in-between, right? This already but not yet. And what I think that many of us experience in this in-between is we have this question that just keeps popping up. Why? What, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in this season? How, how is this helpful right now? Why not just get me straight to the glory? And I think that this text actually provides, it's not going to unlock every answer for us and tell us exactly what God's doing in my life, but it does give us a, a glimpse of what God is up to. And so as, as we make our way through this text today, what, what I want you to see are a couple of things that I hope, if you're in that spot, if you can relate to that, a couple of things that will give you hope. The first one is this, that you aren't where you were, all right? You aren't where you were. Where you are now is not where you have been. And the second one is this, that there's a reason for where you are now. And the third one that we'll look at is that you won't always be where you are now. All right, so, so you, weren't, you, you, you aren't where you have been. Where you are now, there's a reason for it, but you won't stay here forever. And so with that, we're going to jump into Exodus 23. If you want to open your Bibles, your Bible apps, um, if, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible by your feet. You can grab that and take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, and we will be in Exodus 23. That's right at the front of your Bible. And, and really at this, where we're at in our text here, um, 
it brings us to the end of the section of the law, which theologians call the covenant code. Okay, it's basically a, a, a block of laws and rules that God lays out for his people in order to keep uh, this covenant that God's made with his people. And, and this covenant that God has made with his people is this, that he will make them his people, that they will be his special people, his special treasure, and they are to be devoted only to God. That, that's the deal, that God will provide all this blessing, they'll make him his. Israel just needs to listen and obey and stick with God. And so what God does here in chapters 20 through 23, he's laying out what that looks like for Israel, what it looks like to hold up their end of the covenant. And so what it does, chapter 20 begins with the Ten Commandments. It's this moral code, um, these new principles that God lays out for his people that makes them a distinct people different than any other people in the world. And then chapters 21 through 23 sort of elaborate and build out uh, what it looks like to, 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 ha- to keep this moral law in the context of civil dealings. So, so there's some, some specific scenarios that God lays, lays out, that this is what you do in this situation, this is what you do in that situation. And it really provides God's people with, with a, a grid of how to be God's people in the real world, right? And so he's giving them real-time, real-life situations and how to deal with one another and with the outside world. It's a blueprint of how to live in God's world. And, and, And so God lays out this covenant. God will bless his people. His people need to be devoted only to God. And the way that they do that is by obeying his commandments. But when we're dealing with the covenant, with God's covenant, it's important to remember the order of how things have unfolded. Because it's easy. It's really easy as for to read and especially when we see the word obedience, to, to get things sort of twisted uh, and, and gain a misunder- have a misunderstanding of how the covenant works and then specifically how God operates. And so I think what, what happens a lot of times, we see the law and we, we take these as the rules that we follow in order to get God's blessing. But really what, what's happened is that God has blessed his people even before they've, they've even heard the law. That God has worked in some pretty profound ways, first of all, to deliver them from Egypt, but, and even to provide for them in the wilderness, and now God is giving them the law which they are to respond to, in the response to God and what he's done for them in, in obedience to. And so, one of, just to give a quick synopsis, um, to, to kind of lay out what that looked like here, um, I'll, I'll go back to Exodus um, 19. I think that's where I'm at. Exodus 19 lays out this, what happened here. Um, Here it is. God speaks to his people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So first of all, God is saying, hey, I brought you guys out of Egypt. I've done this already. It's done. And he goes on, now therefore, in light of this, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So uh, Moses came down and told the people, um, verse 8, and the people said together, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. So there's this order here that we see. It's not that they obey and then God offers blessings. God has blessed. In light of the blessing, God calls for their obedience. And then in their, through their obedience, there is blessing as well. And so what, what we see here is obeying the law isn't what saved God's people. See, God, God saved his people for obedience. 
And through this obedience, they'll experience a life of blessing. This, this is one of the themes that we're going to see throughout the rest of, of, of the story of, of Exodus, but we'll also see it here in our text. But most of us don't think of obedience as this sort of joyful expression most of the time, I think. You know, you think of obedience, you think of sort of white-knuckled, bear down, just do it, get the job done. It becomes a sort of mentality of uh, uh, obedience. Well, fine, if, if I have to, I guess, this, I'll, I'll do it, you know. And this gives us the, the, this makes us kind of look at God in, in a funny light, to, to see him as this fun-sucking, law-giving, joy-crushing rule maker. I think that's a lot, how a lot of us might look at God when we don't understand how he's worked for our salvation. And, and therefore, the rules are uh, oppressive. They keep us from something good. But, but here's, here's the deal. When we look at verses 10 through uh, 19 in our, our text today, we see we see a very different picture of God than that rule, uh, rule-giving, uh, suppressing, fun-sucking God. We actually see a God that likes to party. Right? We see a God that tells his people to rest, to enjoy, enjoy their work and rest, and, and to celebrate and have festivals. So, so let's go. Uh, here we are at, at, at chapter 23. I'm going to... With that, he, he's, gonna, he's just going to tell his people to rest. I'm going to go right to verse 12. I'll skip a couple of verses and we'll go back. Because what he's doing here, God is, is re, recounting or telling his people again the fourth commandment to, to keep, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. This is nothing new, right? But this is profound. See, if you remember... 400 years of slavery these people have experienced. 400 years, day in, day out, on the grind, get the work done, no vacation, no day off, go, 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 all the time. And God comes on the scene. He saves them from that and says, guys, for every six days you work, take a day off. It's this, this new code, this new uh, expression that these people get to experience of, of resting in their work and enjoying the, the labors that they produce. And so this gets expanded. Go back to verse 10. This, this Sabbath principle gets expanded to now uh, the years. He says that, For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lay follow, fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and leave whatever, and they leave the beasts of the field. Whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. So uh, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. See, God expands on this commandment. Says every six years you 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 work hard, and then on the seventh year you give your field a rest. You let it recuperate. Now this is for the farmers in the room. This seems like a bad business move, right? You're missing out on on revenue here. But really what God is, is, is showing his people is, well, one, to be mindful of the land, that, that you can't just keep going and going and going, that, that if you give this land some time to breathe, it'll actually become more uh, fruitful. It'll have a greater yield in, in the future years. But God is also helping these people become mind, mindful of other people around them, that, that the poor may eat and, and the wild beasts may have something to eat as well. So this, this act of obedience and rest is not only something that they get to enjoy, but it's something for others to enjoy as well, that they get to 
eat from the field. And then verse 13 kind of continues on here, um, but actually it takes us to a new commandment. It's not so much about rest and, and work anymore. It really takes us back to the first two commandments. Verse 13 says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of, other, of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. See, these people, God's people, are to remember God, who he is, and what he has done, right? That God is unlike any other God, that he's not like the gods that they, were, uh, experience, that they experienced in Egypt, that God is gracious and merciful, that he is the, the God of their salvation. And in light of this, they are to keep a feast to him. Verse 14, three times in a year, you shall keep a feast to me. See, God likes to party. These feasts aren't just like, uh, you know, an evening of celebration. These are week-long celebrations that these people would get to enjoy. The first feast that, that God lays out is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall keep the Feast of, the, of Unleavened Bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Here's party rule 101. Don't come empty-handed, right? Right? You come to MC empty-handed. Everybody's like, what's the deal with this guy? <laughs> this, this feast of unleavened bread is meant to commemorate or remind God's people of God's salvation, what God did in Egypt, you see, uh, on the night that they were delivered from, from, Exodus, or from Egypt, uh, God's people, they were, they were told to, to make some bread. And God worked in such a way that, that the Egyptians forced them out of, of Egypt so quickly that they didn't have time for their bread to raise. And so on that night, this is, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God, God inaugurated this back in uh, Exodus 13, this, this meal to commemorate what God had done to get them out of Egypt. And so it's a, a reminder of God's salvation. Now, uh, the other feasts, the Feast of the Harvest in verse 16. Now, this is, this is a feast that God's people would do at the beginning of the harvest season. So in the first week or so of harvest, God, God's people would be bringing in all of their crop, and, and, and they would have a big party to celebrate. Look, look at what God has produced so far. But the thing about this, this festival, it's interesting. It doesn't come at the end of the harvest season, right? Where you would kind of like portion out, okay, this is the first fruits, this is my tenth of, of what God has given us. This is like, this is an act of faith for them to celebrate the harvest, to bring their first fruits to God before they've gathered the rest of the harvest. And so they, they go in uh, and, and they have this party and really what it's doing for them, it, it's, it's helping them to become dependent and trust that God will continue to provide for them just as God continued to provide for them in the wilderness with the manna and the water and, and, the, and the quail, right? And so it's, it's kind of giving them these, these memory flashbacks of remembering what God has done in their past. And then there's the feast of the ingathering, which is where at the end of the harvest season, so I think it's like seven or eight weeks later, they would get together, they'd, they'd have another party to celebrate all the crop that God had produced and offer it, some of it back to God. And so what this really did for God's people was cultivate this, this spirit of thankfulness, right? They would look at the season and say, wow, God has provided for us once again. Thank God. 
And they would celebrate, have a feast, and offer God uh, uh, offerings back to him. And again, cultivating a heart of gratitude. So, So in these feasts, in these celebrations, sorry, my beard is... You've got <laughs> in these celebrations, God is really reminding people of, of his salvation that he's, he's given his people, of, of the provision that he offers them, and he's cultivating in them a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. And as you continue on in verses 17, 18, and 19, it gives more direction on how to observe these festivals, how to party, house rules, if you will. But really the purpose of these laws, of, of, of the purpose of rest and celebration, are meant to remind God's people of one thing. They aren't where they used to be. Right? If they were still in Egypt, there would be no reason to celebrate. There would be no cause for these parties. But God has brought them from Egypt. He has brought them into this new place and has done a marvelous thing for them. He's given them a fantastic reason to celebrate. Now, if, if you have experienced God's grace, then the same is true for you. See, you, if you are a Christian, you aren't where you used to be. Or another way to say it is you aren't who you used to be. And it's so easy to lose sight of that, right? We, we kind of keep going in the grind. We, we, we get our, our nose buried right with, with what's right in front of us that we kind of forget of what God has done in our past, what he's done to bring us right here. I think actually this is probably one of the, the greatest things that social media has to offer right now is time hop or uh, like Facebook memories, right, that pop up every, you know, every now and then you get, you get a notification, okay, this happened five, six years ago, whatever, and it just kind of takes you back for that moment. A lot of times it makes me feel really stupid. It's like, I can't believe I did that. But it's this reminder that I'm not that guy. That God has brought me somewhere else. And so in light of that, in light of God's work through Christ and the faith that he gives us and the way that he changes us, we, we have sort of the same response. We, we acknowledge God uh, for the salvation and provision, and, and we offer worship to him and, with hearts of gratitude. And we don't do this through festivals and, and sort of the feasts that God's laid out here anymore, but we do do this in the context of, of Sunday morning gatherings and in, in the context of missional communities where we gather together to rest and to celebrate. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We celebrate the new life that he has given us, the, the hope that he's given us for our future. See, we get to take a minute to, to like pause and remember that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. That once we were in darkness, and now he has brought us into his marvelous light. And so this is the Sunday morning gathering, our, our, our missional communities where we actually get together and eat and share a meal together. These are rhythms of grace that are meant to, to make us into a certain type of people, of people who rest together people who celebrate together, people who, who acknowledge God's salvation and provision and offer him our worship in response. And while we aren't where we used to be, right, we're, 
I look at my time hop, I'm not that guy anymore. God has brought me to a new place. He has changed me in profound ways. We're not the people we used to be, but we have a hard time where we are currently. Right? We're glad we aren't where we once were, but, but our current situation seems like it's not the right fit just yet. There's progress, but we haven't quite arrived yet. Now, this could be situationally. We think of this in our, our life situation where we're at. Maybe, maybe we've, we've, uh, our marriage has been really tough, and, and we can look back and we can see how God has given us grace and he's grown our marriage and expanded us over, the, you know, over however long it's been. But it's still not there yet. There's still work to be done. Maybe with our kids or, or our job situation, financially, there's a situational play where it's like, maybe it's better than it, what it was, but it's still not quite there. But I think even more so, we experience this spiritually. We're kind of caught up in the same struggles, it seems like. Like the same besetting sins keep rearing their head with, and, and to a certain extent, we're wondering why, why am I still dealing with this? Why am I still struggling with anger and lust and jealousy and, and pride? I thought, I thought that was done with. And so in this sense, in this sense that we're, that Jesus has died for that and he's paid the price and he's cleansed us and, and we're forgiven, but there's still this indwelling sin. There's still this, this mess that we sort of have to deal with day in and day out. This in-between phase. And so in this sense, we can relate to the Israelites where they have been freed from Egypt, but they're, they're, they're not yet in the promised land. They're not yet in the place of glory. They're wandering out in the wilderness living in tents. They're picking up bread from the ground every day to eat. They're essentially homeless. They are in a season. Try that. They are in a season of in-between. They're waiting for the promised land to be opened to them. See, I, I can relate, maybe you can too, relate to this season of in-between language. Just waiting and waiting and waiting. And one of the hard parts of the season of in-between is it seems like there's never really a timeline on it. You don't know how long it's going to last. And even if you do know how long the season of in-between is going to last, it seems like the deadline always gets pushed back a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. Things will be different when I get a promotion. Things will be different when this changes, when I get a good night's sleep. Whatever it is, things will be different, but it just keeps getting pushed back. And honestly... In those seasons, you ask, what in the world is happening right here? What's going on? What's the reason for this? And if you can't see it immediately, it's like, is this time being wasted? This struggle, this grind, is this wasted time? See, we live in, in this fast food 
get it now, instant download sort of culture where we really value the here right now, right? We like, I was on the phone like three times last week with my internet because I had to wait 10 extra seconds for a video download. We like to have things now and, and really God does things differently than an instantaneous boom right now. Most times. And I think verse 30, if you look, look at, ahead a little bit, there's that phrase. He says, little by little. And this phrase has been, been sitting with me all week, thinking just about the slow process of sanctification. The slow process of becoming more like Jesus. The slow process of becoming more fit for heaven. It's not that God couldn't instantaneously change us. He could absolutely do that. And I've actually seen him do that. He does do that time from time in the context of missional community where we press in on somebody and we, we offer them the gospel and we pray for them, lay hands on them, and they walk away that night as a different person, essentially. God does work in that way, but for most of us, it doesn't happen in this big, boom, glorious moment. It happens in the grind, this little by little See, God is more interested about a slow process forward than he is grand gestures of transformation. And certainly God can do that. But the day in, day out, it's just this slow grind, this slow process. And what, what we have to understand is that the season of waiting, the season of in between, the season in the wilderness is by God's design. See, God intentionally led his people out into the wilderness. This wasn't an accident. God, it happens in Exodus 13. God is, is looking ahead. Really, the fastest way to the promised land was not through the wilderness. God could have taken his people straight there, and they would have made it there, but instead God says, you know what, if you go there, this, he actually says that you'll see the wars and you'll turn, turn back and go to Egypt. So God says, I'm going to prepare you. I'm going to prepare you for the promised land. And I'm going to lead you through this wilderness. And it's in this time that I'm doing something profound. See, God likes to take the scenic route. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it just seems monotonous. But it's for our good, because God is doing something. It's, it's a temporary season. The wilderness is a temporary season that's meant to accomplish something that will stick with us forever. And so as we look at verses 20 through 33, I want to argue that God is simultaneously doing two things while people are out in the wilderness, while we're wandering. God is preparing a place for his people, and even more so, God is preparing his people for a place. See, verse 20 tells us exactly what he's doing. Take a look. Uh, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. See, God is preparing a place for his people, and he is going to bring them to it. Now, preparing a place is an intimate gesture. It's It's a sign of hospitality, of thoughtfulness towards uh, someone else, right? We do this when we have company coming to town. We prepare a guest room for them. 
we prepare a, a sort of an itinerary, what we're going to do while they're in town, or, or if, if you're expecting a baby, you prepare a baby room. You're thoughtful of making a place for this person. It's an intimate thing. It's a thoughtful, gracious gesture. So remember this, just while you're in the wilderness, and, and even for the people in Israel, God hasn't forgotten God hasn't forgotten. God is working to prepare a place for them. He's being thoughtful, being mindful of his people and working for their good. He's making a space for them. But at the same time, God is working to prepare a space for them. He's preparing his people for this place. And I think one of the temptations in being in this season of in-between, kind of being out in the wilderness, is that we have been out there for so long, it seems like this is the normal grind now that we kind of come to a place of resignation. This is the way it's just going to be. And so we just roll with it. I'm always going to be here. I'm going to be trapped in this forever. And what we do, what we miss out on is what lies ahead. See, God doesn't want his people to lose sight of what is to come. Even though though their, their immediate surroundings is not ideal for them, it's not what they've been hoping for or longing for, God wants to direct their gaze ahead to what is up in front of them. He wants to cultivate in them an appetite for the promised land. Not so they have a hatred for the wilderness, but their longings for the promised land would be so great that once they get there, they would rejoice all the more. And so what God does, he paints a picture of the promised land for his people to show them where they're headed. He does this. I'm just going to fly through this here. Verse 23. He tells them, and verse 31 says the same, it's this vast land. There's lots of space. Currently, there are six different ethnic groups, six different people groups who are living in this space. And so God says, hey, I'm going to clear them all out. I'm going to give you plenty of space for you. Verse 25, God says, this is a land of blessing. There's going to be plenty of food and water. The, the, The food and water that I provided for you out in the wilderness will not compare to what I have for you here in this land of blessing. Verse 25, 26 keeps going on. It's a land of prosperity and health that God will take away sickness, that there will be no more miscarriage, that there will no be more, no more barren women. 27 and 28, God says this is a land of peace, that I am going to fight for you, that I will protect you, that I'll keep your enemies from messing with you. Verse 29, this is a land that This is crazy. This will be a land that is ready for them. It's like a ready-to-move-in situation, that God will work out the exit of the people who are currently living there in a way that God's people can just move right in. They don't have to recreate a society. They don't have to make new infrastructure. It's already there. They get to inhabit this land that's been prepared for them. So God is preparing an appetite or cultivating an appetite for the promised land. But even more so than that, God is cultivating in them an appetite for God himself. See, God is, is really setting out. He's giving them this picture of the promised land and all the great things that, and all the blessing that will be there. But even more so, God is saying, hey, look at me. Everything that you're wanting, everything that you desire, I have in myself, and I want to give it to you. And so in this wilderness season, this is really what it's all about. God is trying, he's working to make his people satisfied in himself. And in the wilderness, they learn that God is trustworthy, that they can depend on him, that God will provide for them, that God will protect and sustain and satisfy them. 
And the reality is, is that sometimes it takes seasons in the wilderness for us to understand this. If God just dropped his people into this great land with all this blessing, just think of how quickly they would have put God off to the side. I, I mean, I know I do that. It's in the seasons of blessing where I, I'm so much less likely to pray that things are going so well that I can just sort of sail along. But it's in these seasons in the wilderness where God is really developing a dependency upon him. He's changing our hearts to look to him for our satisfaction. And so to prevent his people from having this blessing amnesia, he puts them in the wilderness. Now, God doesn't want his people to stay there forever. The wilderness is just a temporary place for them. God is promising this promised land, but he does not want them to forget who God is and what he has done for them as they enter into this promised land. And so he tells them that as you go, in in verses uh, 24 and 25, um, he's, as you go, don't forget about me. I still want to be your God. He says, uh, you shall not bow down to other gods, and you shall not serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. And then he jumps down to 30, um, verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. See, God wants to keep them from turning elsewhere. He wants to keep them from worshiping false idols and say, hey guys, remember me. He wants to remind them of what he has done and how he continues to care for his people. Now, if you survey this passage, you'll see how much God has done, and you'll see what God is promising to do for his people and how little he's actually asking from the people. Over and over, God says, I will, I will, I will. Twelve times in this passage, God says, I will. I will blot them out. I will bless them. I'll fulfill your days. I will protect you. I'll drive them out. I'll set borders. See, God is saying, look, I've already done so much for you. I've brought you from Egypt. But there's so much more that I have in store for you. And all he asks in return is their obedience. I really, this is a big part of the passage, verse 21 and 22. Pay careful attention to him. This is the angel that God, God has sent to guard them. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. See, God's saying, guys, I want you to obey me. I want you to remember that I am indeed trustworthy. And I want you to live like it. I want you to live like God is the governing principle, the governing factor in your life. And verse 22 shows us that there's blessing in obedience. Obey and you'll be blessed. God will oppose those who oppose you. It's this, this idea that listen to God and it will go well for you. See, he's saying the promised land will be yours if you obey. And on the other hand, verse 33 says the other side of it, that if you rebel, if you don't obey, it won't go well for you. There'll be a snare for you. 
And so Israel is faced with this, do we obey God? Do we listen to him and, and get to where we want to go? It seems like an easy option, right? Yeah. But it's not that simple. As Israel will soon find out, and most of us are very aware of, obedience to God is not an easy thing. We have this incredible propensity for complete dismissal of God and his ways. We're so much more likely to listen to our own voice, our own governing factor, our own wants and desires to lead us on the way that we should go. And day in and day out, we find ourselves veering, straying from God and his ways. Whether it's blessing, amnesia, right? We forget what God has done or what he's, what he's accomplished for us and we sort of do our own thing or whether it's just complete dismissal and disregard. We go our own way. Exodus 32 provides a prime example of this where God's people... Um, God's people, rather than smashing idols, rather, rather than being devoted to God, they construct their own idol and start worshiping a golden calf. Right? This isn't the first time, this isn't the last time where Israel will be swayed by their own wants and desires. They quickly abandon the God who has delivered them from Egypt and is promising them a better future. And because of their disobedience, we're told in our passage, he will not pardon your transgression. They, in not obeying God, they are kept from the promised land. Hebrews 4 hints at this, that these people, this generation of people will not enter God's rest because they have gone astray in their heart. They won't get to the glory. They won't get to taste this promised land that they want. They'll be out in the wilderness forever because their disobedience has disqualified them. And the same goes for us, that our disobedience to God disqualifies us from the promised land. But this promised land that we're offered isn't, isn't this land that's situated between the Euphrates and, and the Red Sea. The promised land that God wants to offer us to take us into is, is the glory of heaven. And our disobedience to God bars us from that. And this is a glorious land, right? This, this heaven is what we long for. It's what we desire, a place of no war, no tears, relational bliss, financial security, no sickness, no pain, a a life of joy and flourishing to the max. But because we're the way that we are, because we go astray, because we'd rather listen to our own voice and do our own ways, we do not get to enter in. We miss out. That's the bad news. If that's where the story ended right there, that would be bad news. But there's good news, that God has made a way for us into this promised land, into the glory of heaven, that it's, it's not through our obedience, it's through the obedience of another. It's through Christ's perfect obedience and substitutionary death that we have access to heaven through Jesus. 
See, that Jesus would lay himself down in the snare of death so that we could go on to glory. We're told that there is a home in heaven with God awaiting for us that is far superior to this promised land that that we are talking about in, in Exodus. Jesus tells us so in John chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, that Jesus is preparing a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know where I'm going. See, Jesus is preparing a place for us. Same thoughtful, hospitable, gracious, loving gesture. Jesus is at work right now preparing a place for us in glory. But the way to that is not through our own obedience. It's not through doing the right things and being the right kind of people. It is through Christ's own obedience. He says, you know the way to it, and he tells us here. He says, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to glory except through Jesus. See, the place to, the way to the place that Jesus is preparing is through faith and trust in him. It's through his finished work. And he's the one who's coming back to retrieve us and to bring us into that glory. And he's the one protecting us. He's the one moving us little by little into glory. See, but the gospel is much bigger than just getting us into heaven when we die. That's that's a pretty small view of glory. See, the best part of heaven isn't the blessing and the awesome stuff that we get to experience It's not the location. The best part of heaven is that God will be there with us. It's where Jesus will be. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, this is the glory that we have look forward to, that, that we will be with Jesus, but it's not just a, a future-oriented thing, that Jesus is here with us now and giving us a spirit as a guarantee of we will be there one day with him in glory. So here's the deal. Until you are satisfied with God here in the wilderness, you will not be satisfied in heaven. See, God is here with us now, helping us navigate through the wilderness. He's he's drawing near to us as we draw near to him. And in doing so, he's making us more fit for the kingdom of God. And so in light of what God has done, in light of what God is doing, in light of what our future glory will be like with our Savior, see, our response now is, is the obedience of faith that in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what God has done to make a way for us, that we respond in worship and obedience. This is different from that white-knuckled obedience that many of us think about. This is a joy-filled obedience, an obedience from the heart. So, so we don't obey to gain heaven. We obey because heaven has been gained for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
for Christ and making a way for us. We thank you that our season in the wilderness is not a season in vain. It's not a season of waste. That you are actually doing something incredibly profound and making us more fit for the kingdom of God. So, Father, I pray that we would uh, submit to your will, that we would become people who are satisfied in you here and now as we take uh, the body and the, and, and the blood of Christ and consume it. Would you deep, deepen our satisfaction in who you are and what you've done for us? Father, I pray that you help us to be a certain distinct type of people who love you deeply and obey out of that deep love for you who celebrate and rest in light of what you've done, people who are reminded of we aren't where we once were and that where we are now is not where we'll be forever, that we will be with you in glory one day, eating this meal together as a church in the kingdom of God. So we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.